Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Lord, um, we thank you that the gospel is for those who are far off. Lord, we are far off in time uh, from those who heard that Pentecost sermon, far off in location from where it was preached, uh, far off in language. Lord, in so many ways, we are far off um, but you have called across time and space and language and all the other barriers that um, we erect uh, either intentionally or unintentionally to your gospel, Lord. You overcome all those things to save souls, Lord. Uh, we thank you that you, uh, you cut people to the heart, Lord, and you do not allow us to remain in our passive mode, Lord, just simply uh, rebelling and going the way of the whole world. We pray that you would be uh, working through CBC, Lord, and in uh, DFW to add to our number, the number of those who know you, uh, many thousands of souls, Lord, even this year. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. Many, uh, many believers are not aware that, uh, that the Feast of Pentecost, that was going on here in the second chapter of Acts, went by a different name, actually two different names, in the Old Testament. Those names were the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of the Harvest of the First Fruits. Feast of Weeks came from the fact that they counted, God said that they were to count seven Sabbaths from the day after the bringing in of the, sheaf, the first sheaf of first fruits that happened during Passover week. They were to count seven Sabbaths plus a day, basically, to arrive at 50 days after that event. And so Feast of Weeks. The other, uh, the other name, the Feast of the Harvest of the First Fruits, comes from the fact that this was the month in which the, uh, the wheat harvest, one of the most important grains to uh, ancient Israel, came in that month. So the new grain, the wheat, was harvested. And before any Israelite was allowed to eat even a single head of grain from that harvest, he was to, to bring the very first and the best from that, that new wheat harvest, and he was to come from wherever he lived to the place where God had, had chosen to dwell in the midst of his people at this point in Jerusalem. And, uh, and he was to celebrate there with his family and his servants and his whole household. He was to celebrate God's provision. So it is no coincidence that the first great harvest of the Holy Spirit through the infant church 
In fact, really, the birth of the church happened uh, in coincidence at the same time as this celebration of the harvest of first fruits uh, from an agricultural perspective. The multitude gathered in Jerusalem for this festival had just witnessed a once-in-history event, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles of Jesus Christ, with the result that every individual, no matter where they were from, no matter what language they spoke, each, each person heard the gospel proclamation of the apostles in his or her own language. This miracle then was followed by a, a, a powerful sermon from the Apostle Peter. And as we saw last week, that sermon had two parts. In the first part of that sermon, Peter declared that the miracle that had just been witnessed there in Jerusalem had been foretold about 500 years earlier through the prophet Joel. That same prophecy that spoke of the outpouring of the, of the Spirit upon God's people also declared that there was coming a very severe judgment from the hand of God. And then, then Peter closes that quotation from Joel with a, a beautiful promise in verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the way to be saved from that coming judgment was to call upon the name of the Lord. The second part of Peter's great sermon on that day identified that Lord. In, that, in the second part of his sermon, Peter said, that Lord, upon whom every person's salvation absolutely rests, is the same person that you guys just nailed to a cross. He's the same one whom King David had declared in Psalm 16 could not be held in the grave, but would be raised from the grave. He was the same person, this same Jesus, who had just poured out, sent forth the Holy Spirit to begin the church of Jesus Christ and to, be, to manifest himself in a, in a very powerful way. The conclusion of Peter's first sermon is in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, where he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's such, a, it's such a bittersweet declaration, right? Uh, it announces the, the beautiful and glorious king of kings, but at the same time it indicts and condemns the hearers. It says, you guys just crucified the Lord of glory. Now in verse 37, we find that by God's grace, very many people in that multitude were pierced to their very heart, and God, uh, God had, had really gotten their attention. And so they asked Peter <laughs> the most important question they would ever ask, really the most important question that anyone ever asks. They said, brethren, what shall we do? This reminds me of the Philippian jailer later on. He says, what must I do to be saved? Um, great question, very important question, and we're going to look at Peter's answer to the question as we proceed. This, this chapter, in this chapter we see the spark of the gospel turn into a blazing fire. 
And by the last verse of, of this morning's passage, that fire has spread to 3,000 souls. Luke says, when the, when the multitude heard this, many among them were pierced to the heart. Uh, one lexicon says that the word used here means to be pierced through, stabbed, or pricked deeply. Another one says that the word presents an imagery of, quote, profound inward impression. Profound inward, I love that, profound inward impression. I had to laugh when I read that. The, the, these, these people who heard Peter's sermon <laughs> became profoundly inwardly impressed that they were in a world of hurt with Almighty God. They were in very, very serious trouble, catastrophic trouble. They had either participated in or they had turned a blind eye to the execution of the long-promised Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, spoken of through the prophets. That's what Peter had just said. And it's important for you and me to recognize that this is not somebody else's sin. This is not something that these people did that doesn't have any bearing on us. I did not nail, I did not drive the nails into the hands of Jesus, but neither did these Jews. Peter said earlier in chapter 2, he said that you nailed to a cross the Lord of glory by the hands of godless men. So the Romans did the nailing, but the guilt was upon the Jews and not just on the Jews. This is every person's this is every person's sin because we all start out destined to wrath. We all start out uh, as rejectors of the Most High God and of the one and only Savior. We are all on a trajectory where we are facing another promised outpouring, and that is the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, spoken of in Revelation 14. So the question is, what shall we do? Now we're going to look at the answer. And the, the bulk of that answer is in verse 38, but then it is amplified in verses 39 and 40. And we're going to look at the four parts to this answer. There are two commands and two outcomes. The two commands are repent and each one be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The two outcomes are for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. First, repent. I'm going to spend a fair amount of time on this word. What does Peter mean by the command to repent? Well, as we would expect, as we should expect regarding something this important, God has not left us to guess. The Greek word that's used here, it, if you strip it down, it just means a change of mind, to have a change of mind. But it is the New Testament equivalent to an Old Testament Hebrew word that means fundamentally to turn, to turn. Okay, so what change of mind, what turning is God commanding through Peter in this passage? Well, if we, if we just keep reading, we find that right here in chapter 2, Peter describes those who responded rightly to this call to repent 
by saying in verse 41 that they are those who received Peter's word. They received the the word of the gospel proclaimed through Peter concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 44, the same group of people described as those who had believed that same word. They received and believed the gospel. Now that should sound familiar. If you go to John chapter 1, there's this beautiful passage in John 1 verses 11 through 13, very powerful. It's in the portion of the chapter that's talking about the Word who was with God and was God from the beginning, who became flesh and dwelled among us. And it says in verses 10, I'm going to start in verse 10 and then read through 13. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. They did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, that is, to those who believe in his name. Those who receive and those who believe are the same group. They're the same people in that passage. And then he says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of, the, of God. And we're going to talk more about that part later in, in, uh, in what we see in Acts. Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Peter uses the same two words, received and believed, to describe those who repented. In the rest of Acts, we see this, this uh, word repent and this concept of turning show up over and over and over. In Peter's second sermon in Acts chapter 3, the apostles had just been used by God to heal a man who was lame, lame from his mother's womb. That's what the wording says. And when when the Jews then are amazed and astounded to see what happened, Peter says to them, why are you amazed? And he says, this man was healed by faith and the one that you just disowned. He was healed by faith in the one whom you demanded be swapped for a murderer, Barabbas. And then he says, the prince of life, the one that God raised to which we are all witnesses. So again, just like in the sermon in chapter 2, Peter is talking about this person, Jesus, what he, who he is, what he did, and also what was said about him before he ever came. He says that this one was announced, quote, announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets. He says that twice in Acts 3. He was, he was foretold by all the prophets. And then in verse 19 of chapter 3, Peter says to this crowd of Jews, he says, Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away. Now you see, in that passage, just as here in Acts 2, forgiveness from sins is connected with repentance. Repent and return, that your sins may be wiped away. Peter is commanding the same turn that he commanded in his first sermon. Turn from rejecting Jesus as the long-promised Messiah and Savior to believing in Jesus as the long-promised Messiah and Savior. That 
is the turning that God had to bring about in these Jews in order for them to be saved. That is, is the turning that God has to bring about in every person from rejecting Jesus as the one and only provision for us to be right with God to trusting in Jesus as the one and only provision for us to be right with God. By the way, I'll, I'll say it now and we'll talk about it again later. There's no mention in Acts 3 of baptism at all. In chapter 5, after Peter and the apostles were thrown in jail and then released by an angel who just flung open the doors of the prison, we find, uh, we find these words. Acts chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 30 and 31. Uh, by the way, after, the, after they were released from prison, the Jewish leadership told them to stop teaching in this man's name. That happened a couple of times. And Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. And then verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Do you see a pattern here? He is the one, this Jesus, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness and then he said, and we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him, who obey Jesus. All right. In chapter 20, and by the way, I want to mention there again in chapter 5, what we see is, is Peter saying, this Jesus, the one that you crucified, he's the one. He is the one alone who provides forgiveness from sins. Acts chapter 20, Paul is saying goodbye to the elders of Ephesus. And he's encouraging those elders to persevere in the work that Paul himself has been doing. He's headed toward Jerusalem. And he already knows that things are not going to go well from a human perspective when he gets there. He tells them to persevere in the work that he has been doing, he and his co-workers. And then he says, he explains that work. He says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance Godward and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, repentance and faith in each of these passages are linked together inextricably. Repentance that is unto eternal life is always a Godward turning. And it is always turning to God to place faith in Jesus alone. In Acts 26, 18, Paul is giving his defense before King Agrippa, and he tells him about the episode in which Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and blinded him and, and turned, him, turned his heart just dramatically and made him his vessel to minister to the Gentiles. And then in the words of Jesus... Given to Paul, Paul relates to King Agrippa that Jesus said to him that the work he was to do was so that they, the Gentiles, may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. From darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and that they may receive an inheritance among those who are sanctified, made holy by faith, in me. Jesus is the one speaking. Repentance, 
results in forgiveness, and repentance is all about believing in Jesus. What is repentance not? Well, the repentance that leads to eternal life is not a change of life from sinful to sinless. In fact, it is not a change of life from sinful to sinning less. Salvation is not a transaction between us and God. We don't, when we repent, we don't stop doing some stuff and start doing other stuff so that that transformation of behavior then somehow qualifies us to receive this gift of forgiveness and eternal life and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. See, that would be a salary, not a gift. And if that's what if that's how you view repentance, friends, if you treat the repentance that is unto life, spoken of in the New Testament, as if it is a change of your behavior that somehow then qualifies you for the grace of God, you got the gospel wrong. I think there are a lot of people who use those kinds of words when they have the gospel right, but they're, but they're, they're misrepresenting what is being presented here. They understand fundamentally in their own hearts, but they're trying to explain something and they're, and they're messing it up. But God has given us a whole lot of evidence and information here to understand what repentance he's talking about. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. God requires of all men that they stop sinning and that they do righteousness. How much righteousness? God requires that every human being possess the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And without his righteousness, nobody will ever see the kingdom of God. But that declaration that God requires of us the righteousness of Christ does not save us. It condemns us. It's great pre-evangelism. It's not the gospel. What repentance unto salvation is, is this. It is turning from whatever is keeping you from trusting in Jesus Christ to trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, for the Jews, what they had to turn from, in many cases, was just a, a dependence on law-keeping to make them meritorious of salvation. They, they believe, in fact, most Jews in that era and many Jews in this era believe that, they are, that because they are Jews, they are born okay with God. <laughs> Steve's laughing. They have the... the covenants and the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and the law? And isn't that exactly what they said in the prophets? They said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were counting on, on the, they believed that, that because these things were connected with them, they were okay with God. And one of the things that a Jew then absolutely had to turn from was, was believing that nonsense. Trusting in a merit in the eyes of God that no human being possesses. 
so that they could then turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Some Jews, for some Jews, it was, it was this one thing, circumcision. If you're circumcised, you're okay with God. Read Romans 2. In fact, read Deuteronomy 10. It was only the circumcision of the heart that mattered ever to God. The symbol did not equal the substance. We're going to talk about that when we get to baptism in a minute. For Gentiles, the from side of repentance, what they had to turn away from, in many cases, was the worship of idols made with their own hands. For others, it was, this, it was an idolization of wisdom. Read Acts 17. <laughs> they were, the, the, the Athenians were, they loved the idea of introducing any new idea. To them, there was an old bumper sticker that the Unity Church used to have. It said, to question is the answer. No, it's not. God has given us the answer. And to the Athenians, just the very act of engaging and and talking about wisdom of men, that's what made it well with their souls. No, it didn't. It's a lie. And in order to trust in Jesus, they had to abandon that lie. They had to turn away from that nonsense, and they had to put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. The from side of repentance looks very different from one person to the next, from one cultural context to the next. But the two side of repentance is always exactly the same. Because what we turn to in every case is trust in the long-promised Messiah and Savior, Jesus Christ. Always the same. All right. That's the first part of Peter's, Peter's answer. Repent. The second part is each one be baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, that is a fascinating uh, and terribly abused declaration. Uh, there are whole churches that have, that have camped out on this one verse to declare that unless you, have the, unless you get the physical ceremony of baptism, in fact, unless you get it in their kind of church, you will not go to heaven. That that ceremony is necessary, is necessary for salvation. It's in, it is just part and parcel. It's, it is part of the gospel is that you be baptized physically. Now, what's our answer to that? What is God's answer to that? Uh, we need to understand what this is, what he's talking about here. And first, I want to point something very interesting out about this, this verse in verse 38. You don't see this reflected in the English, and I know you get it's people get in trouble talking about the Greek when it doesn't seem to be reflected in the English, but I can't get away from this, guys. In verse 38, when it says, repent and let each of you, that's the you is plural, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for, uh, sorry, repent and let, and then the each of you is, I messed up, the repent part is plural. You all repent. The let each of you is actually let him. It's third person singular. You all repent and let him be baptized and then for the forgiveness of your sins, we're back to you, plural. What is that? What's going on here? It's very curious. Um, I'm going I'm to go ahead and show you that next slide because 
what I see going on here is this, and I'm not, I'm not alone in this. The repent and the for forgiveness of your sins are both you plural. They're both talking to the same group of people about, this, about the, same, the same essential thing. One is the outcome of the, fur, of the other. Let him be baptized in the name of Jesus. It almost seems parenthetical. It almost seems like it's thrown in here as something that needs to happen. Whoever does, whoever does repent needs to be baptized. And, and, I, and I want to point out, too, that baptism was, it was applied in every case in the book of Acts. I mean, what I'm saying is it was always assumed. It, it's not always in the narrative, but it's always assumed that if someone comes to faith, they're going to be baptized. We can talk about whether that is how it should go today. We'll make, do that another time. But, but it was it was understood that if you came to faith in Jesus Christ, if you dec- to declare that faith, you would do so publicly. You would identify yourself with, with Christ and with the people of Christ, and you would proclaim what had already happened. Because we're going to talk here about symbol and substance. Uh, before I get to that, and I'm sorry, I'm ramming a little bit. Before I get to that, I want to point this out. There are many, many, many verses that have this same outcome of forgiveness from sins that never mention baptism. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter is talking to the friends of, to Cornelius and his Gentile friends, in verse 42, he says that the, the one that God raised from the dead, Jesus, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. You see baptism in there? Again, in that passage, we see even talking to Gentiles that Peter says, This is the one that the prophets talked about. And it's by trusting in him and him alone that you have forgiveness of sins. You believe, you receive, you trust in Jesus, and that's how forgiveness happens. You turn from unbelief to belief. He also doesn't mention repentance there. It's not because repentance isn't part of of what he's saying. It's because repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't have faith without repentance. You can't have repentance without faith. Because repentance is turning from unbelief to belief in Jesus. I want to talk about symbol and substance, and this is hugely important. Uh, Anybody know how many symbols or memorials you find in the Old Testament? I don't. The answer is hundreds. Everything from from place names to people names to rocks stacked in Gilgal on the west bank of the Jordan to the sacrifices and the priestly garments, everything, so many of the things in the life of Israel were symbols that pointed to something far greater than the symbol. And the symbol never equaled the substance. Never. Anytime the Israelites equated the symbol with the substance, the reality to which it pointed, they got into trouble. 
You remember what happened in 1 Samuel 4 with the Ark of the Covenant? They, they carried the Ark into their battle with the Philistines thinking that the Ark, the symbol, was equal to the presence of God. But no, that's what it pictured. And the Ark did them no good. They lost catastrophically and the Ark was carried away by the Philistines. There are a lot of examples like that. There are many, many symbols. Uh, the same problem occurs when we equate symbol with substance in the church. In one large uh, segment of, of those who call themselves Christians, there is the declaration that every time that the Lord's table is taken, that you are actually consuming the body and blood of Jesus. It's called transubstantiation. It's not true. It's, it, is, it is confusing the symbol with the substance. In this case, if we confuse the symbol that is called baptism, the ceremony, with the substance to which it points, we run into big problems. The, the symbol of baptism is just that. It is a pointer to something far greater that has already happened. And if it hasn't already happened, then the symbol is meaningless. Baptism points to the fact that God has regenerated a human being and brought him out of death and into life. He has buried him with Christ in the likeness of his death and raised him with Christ in the likeness of his, of his resurrection. He is now, that person is now identified with Jesus and with the people of Jesus, and that person is also indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Baptism cannot, the, the ceremony cannot be confused with the reality. And when you do that, what you do is you compromise the gospel. You turn the grace of God into a work that people do. Uh, so this is, a, this is a big deal. Now, I also want to say that does not mean that the symbol is unimportant. God, was, God took the symbol of circumcision quite, quite seriously. He takes the symbol of the Lord's table quite seriously. In 1 Corinthians 11, people who trivialize that symbol, some of them are weak, some of them are sick, and some of them are dead. In Christ, they are asleep. Because they trivialize something that points to a, to a reality that is magnificent and hugely important. So I'm not at all saying that symbols, the symbols given to us, God-ordained symbols, are unimportant. But the point is the symbol does not equal the substance. And when we make out as if it does, we run into all manner of trouble. Um, what I've got up there on the board right now is a picture of this little index card. I was listening to a sermon by S. Lewis Johnson on this passage, and he said that in the Gospel of John, 98 times, John speaks of faith in Jesus Christ as the, as the sole basis of salvation, 98 times. And I thought that was a really big number, so I looked. And I, and I, wrote, I went through the Gospel of John and I wrote them all down. And I came up with 98 times. Um, it's in some cases, three times in one verse. Belief in Jesus with no mention of baptism 
is the ground, the basis of salvation. Now, the, the ultimate basis of salvation, of course, is the blood of Jesus Christ. Faith is how we appropriate that gift. But the point is, is critically important. If you make baptism necessary for salvation, you are really denying the whole tenor of, of both testaments of Scripture. You're taking this one ceremony and making it equal to that, to that which it pictures. Uh, all right. The third thing that, that uh, Peter declares as in, this, in this answer is that the, the consequence or the result of turning from unbelief in Christ to belief in Christ is the forgiveness of sins. That was in, heavily fo in focus in our worship meeting this morning, and it's so very important. The, the gospel is a gospel of forgiveness to those who deserve condemnation. All of us, all of us are headed toward eternal condemnation until Jesus plucks us out of the darkness and brings us into the light of his grace. And it's all and only because he took our our debt upon himself and paid it in full at the cross and our sin is done away with. It is finished. Our sins are wiped away. All right. The last part of this is uh, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In this passage, uh, Peter talks about, he uses the words gift and promise kind of synonymously. Verse 38 and 39 He's, Peter said, repent, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. In verse 39, when he talks about the promise, he's referring back to what he said earlier in chapter 2. Uh, in verse 33, 32, he said, This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, that refers to the ascension of Christ, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself. And then he quotes uh, the fact that Jesus said, that David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The promise that he's referring to here in verse 39 is the promise of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I don't, uh, I have not tended in my gospel presentations to talk very much about the guarantee that, that the one who trusts in Jesus will be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that the Holy Spirit will take up residence in that person. But that shows up quite a lot in the New Testament. And certainly in here in Acts chapter 2, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the endpoint of this magnificent day. That people who put their faith in Jesus received the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, when, God pray, when uh, Paul prays that the eyes of the saints' hearts would be enlightened, one of the things he asked that they would know is the, is the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And then in chapter 3, he says that power is the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Your power to live the Christian life is the same as the power that Jesus had to accomplish everything that he accomplished while he was here on earth. And that's why here in verse 33, it says, having received the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus had poured, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Jesus received the, the fullness and the, and the power and the enablement of the Spirit, and now he's handed that same enablement to all of his people. That is why we have the, the enablement to live the Christian life. As far as who gets this incredible gift, uh, the, the book of Acts, as we'll see, makes it crystal clear that the gift of, of eternal life, forgiveness, and of the indwelling spirit is given to both Jew and Gentile. It's given to all who come to faith in Jesus. And so the scope in verse 39, the scope of this promise is to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. We'll have more to say about that next week. But this is God's work. If there's one thing that, must, that we need to walk away from in Acts chapter 2 is that everything that happened on this day was God's doing. God called people to faith in Jesus. The, the people that came to faith that day did so because God had brought them to that point. Jesus said, in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, that's what happened right here. The scope of this promise is as many as the Lord shall call to himself. And then finally, the exhortation in verse 40. Peter says, and it says, with many other words, he solemnly testified. That means that Peter's message to that crowd actually was a lot longer than what we find here. Might have even been as long as one of my messages. Uh, he says, he, Peter kept on exhorting them over and over. He exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. One thing that every person here should know, one thing that God intends every person to know, to, to acknowledge, is that you are not alone in, in being separated and alienated from God before you come to faith in Christ. You're right there with all the rest of humanity. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw this vision of, of the Lord on his throne and the train of his robe filling the temple and the angels saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, Isaiah cried out to God and he said, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. We are born in the enemy camp. And we are right there with every other human being on the face of the earth in that camp. We are children of wrath until Jesus plucks us out and saves us. And, and the blood of Jesus Christ is, covers us. His blood and his righteousness cover us because God has brought us to trust in him alone. When that happens, we go out of darkness into light. We go out of the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of Jesus Christ forever. And it's done. It's settled. He puts his spirit within us, within everyone who hears and believes, and he seals us for the day of redemption. And nobody can ever take that away from you if you have trusted in Jesus. If you haven't, may this be the day that you do. Peter closes this, this portion of the chapter in verse 41. He says, so then, 
Luke says, sorry, Luke says, so then those who had received Peter's word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people in one day. God is the one who did that. And as I see it, that was the birth date of the church of Jesus Christ. And that was quite a birth date. It's a lot to celebrate. A couple of chapters later, we're going to see 5,000 added. But this spark became a flame, and the flame was about to become a wildfire that would spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And by the hand of God over generations, it has spread to people all over this earth, and it's still spreading. Don't ever believe that the gospel is not progressing on this earth. Oh, man, the stories are incredible from people in the mission field, including in the countries that everybody considers to be most closed to the gospel. Amazing things that God is doing to advance the kingdom of Jesus. Loving Father, we thank you for, for this chapter. We thank you for this promise of forgiveness from sins and the very presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives to all who turn from rejecting the long-promised Messiah and Savior to putting their faith in him and in him alone. He, he is our one and only salvation. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to be filled with joy always because you have made us the recipients of this gift. And we pray that you would use us mightily on this earth to spread this message. In Jesus' name, amen.